Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou au hurihuri, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, Silencing Science. This week, Sean Hendy, a physics professor at the University of Auckland and the recipient of the 2012 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize, is launching a book in which he tackles an important issue, the fact that many scientists are feeling constrained in speaking out publicly. He joins us now in the Auckland studio. Thanks, Sean. Welcome to Our Changing World. Can I first ask you, what made you write this book? Well, there's really a couple of things, Veronica. Um, you know, the first thing is, is I was president of the New Zealand Association of Scientists for, for several years. Um, and during that time, uh, you know, a number of cases came up where um, we were approached by scientists who, who wanted to speak out about controversial issues uh, and weren't able to because of their um, employment conditions. And, they, you know, these were scientists in Crown Research Institutes um, that don't have free reign to, to talk about science. What uh, were the issues? Can you give me an example? I'm thinking um, I, the botulism scare. Botulism scare was one that came up. During that, when Fonterra uh, thought it, there was a batch of milk powder that was potentially contaminated with botulism. It was contaminated, but not with a dangerous um, organism. And I was actually approached by the media, and the media were desperate to, to try and get scientists to talk, um, and there weren't scientists talking. It was, it was remarkable. And so this is one of the things that I wanted to look into in silencing science. You know, why was it that in an area you'd think would be so fundamental to New Zealand, you know, uh, our dairy industry, why is it we could find no scientists to actually talk about the safety uh, well, of we, our products? We do have food science specialists, but were they all locked up in a in a process that did not or no longer allow them to speak out? Yeah, I mean, that turns out to be what happened. Of course, there are obviously scientists that work at Fonterra. You know, perhaps it's understandable as to why Fonterra wasn't fronting those scientists. That would have been a difficult thing to do. You know, we have scientists at the Ministry of Primary Industries, and I think over the, the you know last decade or so, we've seen fewer government scientists, ministry scientists, fronting in, in issues like this. Um, and then, there, you know, of course, there are a whole lot of independent scientists at universities, and, and they really should have been fronting. But actually, it turned out what happened was the Ministry for Primary Industries formed a technical advisory group, um, and it was, it was about a dozen of the country's top experts um, in foodborne illness, signed these guys up to this group, then inhibited them from, from speaking out. They had to sign non-disclosure agreements. And so suddenly we had this situation where virtually every expert in the country, for one reason or another, was stopped from talking. And so there was a vacuum in the media and, and journalists just simply couldn't find scientists to talk. I mean, this also illustrated what happens then if there's a vacuum like that and what happened in this particular story is that then suddenly there was wrong information coming out. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Gary Romano, of course, went on Campbell Live and uh, and actually appeared to confirm um, that they had found the, the botulism toxin um, in the powder, um, and that, that was incorrect, and it's still not clear exactly why, why he thought that was the case, but some sort of internal communication problem at Fonterra. And then, you know, there, there are so few scientists out there in the, that were, could speak publicly to correct him. 
One of the scientists who did step up was um, Dr. Susie Wiles from the University of Auckland. Now, you know, food science is not her um, expertise, um, but she is a microbiologist, so she's able to read the literature and gain a fairly good understanding of, of the literature. And she worked out that he was wrong. Given the information, the technical information that Fonterra had already put out, he must be incorrect. And so she was able to correct him through a blog uh, and then by talking to journalists. This should really be a golden age for science communication compared to, say, even just the decade that I've been doing this now. We have a lot more scientists who are willing to speak, a lot more recognition for that through prizes and awards. We have uh, an advisor to the government on science. Why is this still such an issue? Unfortunately, you know, we're, we're now running up against some of the barriers that, that perhaps weren't so obvious a decade ago uh, when there were fewer people speaking out. And of course, one of them are the, is these commercial constraints. Um, scientists, over the last 10 years, we've been required to demonstrate more impact from our work, we, you know, where there's been a shift um, away from, from basic research, particularly in our, in our Crown Research Institutes, um, towards um, industry-funded um, research and so you know so we're actually hitting constraints because of the shift towards um, impact-driven funding, um, and then there's there's also lots of technologies that we have now. We we can blog, we can use Twitter, we can podcast, um, and and actually that that does mean that we're hearing from a, a much more diverse uh, range of voices, range of scientists' voices, and some of these scientists are talking about things that perhaps you know, wouldn't have been acceptable for them to talk about because science c communication has become more democratic. For example, you know, there are some really good PhD students who blog and tweet, um, some of whom I follow. You know, I find really interesting to, to hear about their work. Ten years ago, we probably weren't um, hearing from PhD students, and so that's a bit of a challenge to the, the hierarchies in science. You know, science has tended to work, you know, it's really towards the end of your career um, when science communication was seen as something that you should be getting into, you know, when you're um, heading, you're the distinguished professor. Those are the people that we're used to seeing as scientists in the media. And, of course, now we're seeing students um, who are very effective communicators. And I think that's changing the culture of science um, and, and leading to a little bit of a backlash. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the idea of, you know, cherry picking because it's one of my challenges all the time that because of how science works, it is easy to find studies or findings that you can use for whatever your agenda is. And we've had a number of issues where that has been employed as a strategy by interest groups. What's your thoughts on how that could be better tackled by both scientists and science journalists, really? In a way, it's, it's, it comes down to the public understanding, um, getting a better understanding of how science works. And, and we've, you know, science, we've traditionally done it behind closed doors. Um, uh, you know, not because we're de deliberately secretive, um, but because, you know, we simply haven't had the means to expose people to the way that science works. To get around this issue of cherry picking, where where someone just, even where um, something's well established scientifically, there will always be studies that are outliers, you know, simply due to, to statistics, um, and someone can pick that study and and use it to to justify a position that's not supported by the evidence. And so, actually, I think that the answer is really that the that the public needs to have a better understanding of how cherry picking works, and and the fact that you have to look at a range of evidence. And of course, you know, journalists as well have to have to get used to, rather than sort of reacting to the single study, you know, the single university press release, um, can they put that in context with other scientific information that's out there? Um, so really, I think it comes down to the science community um, being more open 
that they are um, including all the evidence, you know, when they when they go out with their individual studies. But that's also the role that journalists should really have. Having read your book, you talk a lot about the Christchurch earthquakes in there and how it would be the blog of somebody at a regional authority that would alert the media to just the risks of aftershocks. But really, the journalists should be looking up that sort of information themselves. So I think there's, you know, both parts. Room for improvement, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think we do have to build better relationships between journalism and between the media um, and our science organisations. And and I think that's, you know, if you look at um, at how GNS Science has reacted in the earthquakes, you know, some of the earthquakes since um, the Canterbury earthquakes, they've clearly learnt that, um, and they have a much more integrated approach now when they the, when they work with the media. I think, I think when they came into the Canterbury earthquakes, there was still a sense that the media are a little bit out to, to trip you up and to perhaps sensationalise what you're saying. But if you look at how they've worked subsequently, there's been much more of a partnership between the media and GNS Science. So I'm, I was really pleased to see that. Of course, even just once being tripped up, misquoted, misrepresented can be damaging to your career as a scientist. So I sympathise with people being reluctant to stick their neck out, really. None of us like it. And, and I think... You know, my antidote to that is to be more open um, and to be using social media. I mean, I think one of the things about a blog post is that actually, you know, you can completely control what's in that blog post as a scientist. You're not having it filtered through a a journalist. Um, You actually get to put down your thoughts as you write them in in a a blog post. And again, that comes down to being, I think, being more transparent about science, right? If you're on the record making statements through through social media, um, then you know, you're know you insulated to a certain extent about being misquoted. If you do get misquoted, you can point to the blog. And of course, if you've got a blog up, you know a journalist is, is less likely to misquote you because they can have a look at your written statements and take time to consider them. What about personality? There's a lot of discussion about what role scientists should play in this broader field of science communication, particularly when it comes to issues that are you know, immediately relevant to the public. And I'm, I'm thinking climate change here. For me, that's one of the biggest issues where the scientific evidence is perhaps more than just to be shared. It's really the science community calling for action. Yeah. And at that point, you sort of depart from the usual science communication where you just share the information and leave it to others to do with it whatever they wish. You know, traditionally, um, and I think perhaps for a long time, the safest thing has felt like we, we just put the facts out. And there are still science organisations that work this way, you know, that avoid controversy and simply put out the scientific findings. I think, you know, there's a couple of problems with, with that. I mean, it does leave you vulnerable to, to cherry-picking. Right? If you're just putting out the facts, people can pick and choose which of those facts they want to use. Um, but also I think there's a moral responsibility that, that scientists have to ensure, you know, not not necessarily to... to talk about ramming policies down the public's throat, um, but to actually try and point out which, which policies um, are best supported by the evidence. Um, and, and this is always going to come down to your own ethics and your own uh, personal convictions. You know, we can't avoid that. Uh, we, all have, we all have these things that guide us uh, when, when we think about where society should go. And scientists, I think, have to be explicit about that. And, and, and also, I think it means we need a, a range of scientists with a range of different values and views um, contributing to the public debate. We can't simply, you know, when it comes down to, to looking at particular policies, um, we can't simply assume that the scientific community is going to agree, agree completely about all the different policy implications of the work, even if they all agree about the science.
So there's room for some scientists to become advocates? Yes, and I think it's actually important. I mean, one of the things I look at at in the book is what happened um, in the lead up to the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Um, and, and again, there, you know, scientists were operating in a very passive role. Um, they, they knew, um, based on um, studies of previous tsunami, um, that the, the Fukushima nuclear power plant was very likely to actually have it be hit by the size of tsunami that, it, that, that did destroy it. Um, but they again, they were in this passive mode. They were simply presenting the facts, and it was all too easy for the for the Japanese nuclear industry and the and the Japanese government to ignore them and just put them to the side. And so I think, you know, in that situation, there was a very clear moral responsibility of those scientists to go public and to and to start advocating uh, for something to be done. Hardest thing to do, though, if you're up against, yeah, in this case, government organisation. It is difficult. Some of the people I admire the most in science communication are the people that have that have taken that on. You know, and it's it is bruising. Um, you can come in for personal attacks from um, from um, special interest groups, um, sometimes funded by by industry behind the scenes, um, and actually sometimes your colleagues will actually you know also not be very supportive. I think one way we can we can combat that is if, simply if there are more of us willing to do it. Right? If we're, if if you're the only lone voice as a scientist. Um, who's who's speaking out? It's very easy to pick you off and and make what you're saying seem politically motivated um, rather than um, something that, that that's really motivated by your concerns about the scientific evidence. So I think, you know, I, in in the book, I really try and make a case that there should be more of us doing this, if only to make it more acceptable for scientists to do that and to support those that are that are sticking their necks out. You was a calling for a science commission. What are you thinking there? Would it be something similar to say the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, that kind yeah. of role? Yeah, I think it, w- it, w- it would be a similar uh, role to that. To some extent, this this role is played by other um, organisations in New Zealand. I mean, the Royal Society um, produces um, evidence-based uh, reports on, on topical issues, and I think um, the Royal Society could work with, with a Commission for Science. The important thing about a Commission for Science is that it would be independent of government funding. It wouldn't be vulnerable to the uh, funding of the government of the day. It would be responsible to Parliament. Um, rather than a government minister. Um, and it would also take on some of the roles that the New Zealand Association of Scientists have done. Um, you know, New Zealand Association of Scientists is an independent uh, organisation. It doesn't receive any funding um, apart from its membership base. That also limits the resources it has. And, and during my time as president, you know, I did have to deal with, with a couple of cases where scientific misconduct within some of our science organisations had been alleged. Um, and, and it was a difficult thing to cope with as, as a, you know, essentially a, a, a president in my evenings, <laughs> um, which is when I sort of had to get that work done. Um, it was difficult for me to deal as speedily as I should have been able to with those issues. And so I think we actually lack a mechanism to deal with scientific whistleblowers uh, in New Zealand. In the situation, you know, the Fukushima situation, for example, where we had scientists that had evidence that, that was showing that, that government policy was dangerous, um, you know, I think a science commission in New Zealand would be a mechanism whereby that, that evidence could be, could be made public and put to the government more directly. And that was Sean Hendy, Professor of Physics at the University of Auckland and the Director of the Centre of Research Excellence, Te Punaha Matatini. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. Check out our webpage for photos and web features rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kia ora mai. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.